Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, it's Sophia, and welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is Tony Golden Globe and Emmy award-winning actress, Mary Louise Parker. Mary Louise is probably most recognizable for playing Nancy Botwin, the protagonist of Weeds, but she is also a powerhouse performer in live theater. She originated roles in shows like Proof, Heisenberg, Prelude to a Kiss, and so many more. She's a phenomenal writer who's written for the New York Times, O Magazine, Esquire, and even put out a critically acclaimed book, Dear Mr. You, in 2015. In her personal life, Mary Louise is an avid practitioner of transcendental meditation and mother of two. She often travels as part of her humanitarian efforts through both the David Lynch Foundation and Hope North, an organization dedicated to helping Ugandan orphans, child soldiers, and civil war victims find safety, stability, and access to education. Mary Louise is one of those people who seems to be able to be both openly self-aware and incredibly empathetically focused. And I am so excited for both you and me, I am a huge fan, to get to know her a little bit better today. Enjoy. Well, just before we get started, I, I've always wondered, do you prefer to be called Mary Louise or just Mary? What's what's your oh, preference? Oh, it's Mary Louise. Thanks for asking. It is Mary Louise. Okay, great. Yeah. I thought so. That's what my parents always called me, so. Got it. I, I've got a girlfriend who I did a show with years ago, Bethany Joy, and she goes by that professionally, but all her friends just call her Joy. So I, I always feel like because of her, I'm very conscious of double-named ladies. Yeah, you end up with like a lot of... Uh, Nicknames and it kind of gives you, I feel like it gives you like this, like the agency to constantly create new ones if you feel like it, like Mm. just randomly. 
which I guess you should have anyway if you feel like using a new name. Like, I don't know. There's something kind of nice about it. I'm really curious. Who was Mary Louise as a little girl? Were you this, you know, sensitive and inquisitive and intelligent and, and exploratory? Or, or were you really different? I was really different. I was really, really fearful of other people. And I would actually go, not not metaphorically, I would actually go under my bed with a flashlight and read at, with the curtains drawn. And I was that kid, you know, that wanted to get in the corner. Mm-hmm. And in a way that just didn't, didn't feel very nice. I don't, I don't really know why. Like, it's something I may never really understand. Maybe I was born like that. I'm not sure. But it was just so easy to hurt my feelings that a teacher could look at me the wrong way and I would cry. So it was really harrowing, I think, for my parents when I said I was going to go, you know, I'm going to New York. or Well, first, I'm going to acting school. I'm going to be an actor. I think everyone was like, okay. Because <laughs> I did. I mean, I didn't talk very much and mm. I stuttered. And I was just very, I still feel like that awkward in the room but my parents were like genies in a way that I will never match my mother could be a little transparent and I could see she's like she's going to New York but my dad was always like yeah yeah I think that's the right choice that's yeah you're gonna do that okay you're quitting all your academics because you want to focus on your okay good yeah like that and yeah it's just like you're going to New York you're gonna do great like everything is just like it's a given mm. that what you're doing is right, that you will do well, not in a way like you're going to soar to the skies. It's just like, no, you're going to do exactly what you want in your way. Mm. And once I started acting and I had that, I did and could. Not that I feel like I'm like the best actress or anything or like I've done everything right or, but, but that I found a way to speak to the world, you know? And I also, for whatever reason, just kind of emerged fully, I don't know if confident is the right word, but no, I'm doing it my way. Mm -hmm. I want to do it this way. Not fully, fully across the board, but for the most part. And there was like an evolution of that. And there have been like moments that I failed, but For the most part, especially for a girl in the 80s and the 90s, Mm. yeah, I did. And to the point where a lot of people didn't like it. It strikes me watching you speak about it and, you know, the folks listening can't see you, but you're, when you're talking about that emergence, you're, you're coming up almost like a, like a tree, you're you're moving like you feel embodied. And it sounds to me like you got rooted in yourself when you could perform. Mm. And and this might be a a leap, but having done my homework and and read through everything I could about your life, it, it strikes me that you know, to be rooted, you have to be planted somewhere. And Oof. you mentioned this, you lived in Europe, but you were born in South Carolina and then you moved around a lot when you grew up. And and I, I think about for a kid, especially a fearful kid, because I had that moving around a lot really? as a little girl. I, I It made me nervous. And 
And yet, I also think as an adult that moving around and meeting different people and living in a huge city like LA and a 5,000 person cattle ranch town in Northern California and all all these places made me curious about the world. And I, I think it informed somehow in my being what I do now as an activist and an advocate, and you do a lot of that. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and so I, I might be just projecting what feels similar about our experiences, but it, it mm. strikes me as really interesting that that perhaps the bouncing around and a bit of the culture shock, which also I imagine made you so curious and able to fit in anywhere, might have been at war. And then you you got back to North Carolina and you went to school and you started doing your thing and and you rooted, maybe? Yeah. When when were you most, like, comfortable as a child? And by child, I mean, like, from, like, 7 mm. to 12. When were you the most, yeah, relaxed? I was the most relaxed. I started going to a summer camp um, up in the mountains in California, 65 miles northeast of Fresno, like up in the Sierras, just nothing around for miles. And I went there every summer for a couple of weeks, starting at nine. And I went there until I was 18. And that's where I was always the most comfortable. There there was tumult um, at home for a while from eight to 12, like every family has their version of. And, yeah. and there was a lot of... Um, academic expansion and and finding myself in theater in high school. But I also went to to this all-girls school, which gave me intellectual freedom. But there was a lot of strange sort of mean girls dynamics. Uh And and it it was my summer camp that was my place where I always felt like I got home and I felt really free. And Oh, I just, that that's what comes to mind first. Was it the people there or was it the surroundings or? I think it was the people. There was like a core group of friends I grew up with there. And, you know, my high school sweetheart was my best friend from camp since I was nine. And, and then it was also, I think, the structure that I didn't realize was teaching me. But as a young girl to be you know, riding horses and going on hikes and learning to rock climb and, and doing water sports and all of these things, you know, sleeping in a tent for three weeks. It just, Mm -hmm. it gave me strength in myself. So that, that's what comes to mind. It's not so much a year. And not having your parents there. Yeah. Yeah. I think because there was an independence and yet, you know, a a structure of safety. Um, Mm -hmm. But I couldn't, you know, I couldn't like lean into my mom's leg. I, I had to go yeah. out and do things. And were you like, were you less inclined to do that when you were at home? Do you feel like you like more stayed? At home, there was for me more, more of a, of the pressure to, you know, be a good girl, daughter of an immigrant family. You know, you oh, come here and you're right. going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer or a mm. doctor. <laughs> And get straight A's and do the things and work for dad on the weekends. And, and it, I, I felt like I had to be so good, which is interesting for my parents to hear now. But, you know, kids take in what they take in. And, yeah, yeah. and at camp, I felt like I got to be free. Was there a, yeah. was there a year for you? And I'm curious, or, or a place, because you bounced around was there a place or or a season that in your childhood felt that way for you where you felt 
free or perhaps even more curious? In my childhood, those years, I would just say when I was reading. Mm. I'd, I'd say that's probably it. Or writing. Yeah, there's not a, there's not a, not a whole lot of freedom. What did you love to read? Oh, I, I didn't read super, you know, like hyper academic stuff. But I'd read mm. all the time. And I love to read. And I just remembered recently, and I went and asked my mom, she's 97. And of course she was like, oh, honey, I don't remember. But I was like, don't, don't you remember? I was like, how old was I when you used to take me to the library and just leave me there? Because that was a totally safe thing yeah. to do. And also I was a kid that you couldn't leave anywhere by myself. But at the mm-hmm. library, I was okay and really happy. And yeah, you'd have to pull me out of there. Now, when I think about it, I wish I'd had an instrument. You know, it's that I had that same thing where um, my brother quit piano, so Mm -hmm. I quit piano. You know, I I think things like that are enormously like fortifying Mm -hmm. for kids in a major way to the point where I would say it's okay to push your kids at the expense of their chores. Because I think, God, I I just don't even, there's a list of reasons why, but you know, last night we got home really late and lately I've been like, okay, I just need to be really, really succinct and thorough about this. And I said to my daughter, I said, I know it's really late. I asked you this morning, but you owe me seven minutes. Cause I said, you just, Seven mm-hmm. minutes on the harp or the flute or whichever, you know, she thought I meant seven minutes the next day. So I sat there waiting and I was getting really mad. But it, they're old enough now where I can already see like, oh, yeah, I messed that up and I messed that up. But I believe it's okay at the expense of mm-hmm. chores, at the expense of mm-hmm. whatever, something like that, or if they write or anything, you know, swimming, anything Mm -hmm. that's like, um, gets them moving in their Mm -hmm. body and their mind and their, and I think music is just enormously powerful. And I wish I had it as a, I wish it was a vehicle for me, you know, other than just sitting and listening to it. Me too. I, it's funny now I think about all the things that I rolled my eyes at as a kid and now I'm going, God, I just wish they'd pushed me a little harder because I, I just started taking piano lessons this year. And Oh, my God. Wait, how old are you? Can I ask? I'm 38. Okay. So I'll just tell you that, and this is kind of embarrassing, but I started piano at 44, I think. I was doing a play. And for I did it when I was little, and then I quit. And then I started again. And for whatever reason, because I was doing a play... I actually practiced until I got a nerve damage. Like I practiced my face off. I was doing Beethoven. Yeah. To the point where a guy that I ended up dating who was a musician came to the play, thought I was pianist and I loved it. I loved it. I ended up with that musician. I was too embarrassed to practice in front of him and I didn't play again. So if you're 38, please don't stop. Like mm. 38 is to me, that's, that's really young. Like you can do so many things. Like I'm so excited for you that you're only 38. Oh like, my gosh. Please don't stop. Uh, please don't stop. Well, do you, do you want to start again? Do you need a, a piano accountability buddy? 
oh my God, I kind of love this. Cause, and I'm staring right at my piano when I say that. <laughs> I kind of do. And my daughter said to me, you know, she's like, it's not too late, mom. It's I'm not. Like, it kind of is. And then I, I can play like three scales at this point. There's Seriously? not a lot that I can do. But the, the interesting thing, and I'm having this mind-blowing moment, I grew, I mentioned to you, you know, I grew up in in the house I grew up in, and I always thought I was going to be a doctor, and now I wish I learned how to play the piano. And, and in the job I'm currently doing, I'm playing a doctor who plays the piano. <laughs> and I just wow. realized I've called all of this into my life. Wow. Yeah. And so when you talk about it, for your play, I just, I think about the research we get to do, you know, I, to prepare for the the pilot of this show, I was shadowing heart surgeons. I was in on open heart surgeries. I was, I've been on an open heart surgery. It's amazing, isn't it? Isn't I held the, the valve in my thing? hand. <gasps> held the valve. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. It is the most incredible rush oh and my experience. God. And I just think in moments like that, I think we're so lucky to be actors so because we just get to go into these worlds like little yeah. sponges. That's a massive privilege to be able to see that. I wasn't massive. there because I was an actor, but maybe in some ancillary way it was because I was an uh. actor, but it really wasn't. But it's I, I felt like watching it, it was almost like seeing a ballet and it was seeing mm-hmm. these people moving with like such purpose, such yeah. like such direction and all for one person who they didn't know, mm-hmm. one human being lying mm-hmm. on a table that they didn't know would probably never see again. What it was, was so, so fa- profound. It's mind blowing. And I, I remember at the moment when everything was done, standing over and the doctor, you know, tells me to come and I, I literally look over and straight down at this man's I know. newly fixed heart. <gasps> and I, and I looked down and he said, you know, you, you put your, put your hand down, put your hand on his chest so you can feel. And I looked at them and I went, oh my God. And the whole room goes, oh my God. Cause they thought I was going to faint. You know, they get nervous about new people in the, in the operating room. And I, and I looked and I go, I'm so sorry. I'm just scared. I'm not going to pass out. And I was crying. <laughs> I had tears streaming down my face. And I just said, yeah, if, it's if everyone could feel this mm-hmm. war would be over, like it would just be over. Agreed. This, this is so magical. Agreed. Oh, I just, I love it. Well, interestingly enough, I don't know if this is kind of a similar moment. I was kind of leaning back against the wall and I was so overwhelmed. I leaned back, not seeing where I was leaning, leaned on a light switch, swear to Christ, turned out the lights in the room during open heart surgery. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And the perfusionist was like, we've all done it. She was like immediately there such a rock. This girl was oh. such a badass. And she knew that I just felt like such an idiot, but um, it didn't really affect anything. But yeah, I was just, it, it knocked me out. Mm-hmm. I was just staring at everyone and, and mm. envious in that way. That's a wonderful feeling where you don't mm-hmm. want what they have. You just, you love that they have it. There yeah. must be another word other than envious has such a I don't know. It has like a negative connotation, but it feels to me like being enamored, yes. almost, almost yes. infatuated. Very good. Yeah. You're like drunk on mm-hmm. how good it is, what you're witnessing. Mm-hmm. It's it's really surreal. Yeah, and it was uh, a child. Wow. Too, and I'd gotten to know the mother a little bit 
Were you there when they did the crack? Because oh, they told me it. to not be there mm-hmm. when they did. They cracked open the rib cage because they said some people can't. And I, I said I'm pretty sure that I'm going to mm-hmm. be okay, but I'm. I wanted to be humble and say I don't know. There's every chance that. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. Maybe I can't. Maybe I'll be in there. I don't. I don't know what I'm going to feel. But so they said, let us just crack the rib cage open. And then you can enter. And then I, I got to stand, as you said, like right there for much of it. And there were two surgeons like mm. working together and uh, two music in the room. Yes. You know Incredible. what I love about it is that the surgeons stand on either side like this. They almost make a heart. Oh, my God. Yes, they do. Yeah. Interesting. I have somewhere you might want to go with me someday. Yeah. It's uh, a yes. place in Rwanda. Yeah. With um, every year heart surgery. Okay. Yeah. Yes, please. Fun. I, I think you oh, like it. I, and yeah, I want to talk to you about all of that. I mean, there's so much. We went from college to heart surgery and then Rwanda touches on your activism. <laughs> well, did you but, see like the echocardiogram? Like it's yes. all so poetic yeah. that um, that there are all these chambers, mm-hmm. right? Like doors to mm-hmm. the heart and passageways. And when, you know, the heart like has to work too hard, mm-hmm. it becomes exhausted and it's, it, the blood can't be directed mm. because it's it it's the organ is working too hard and it's also like st- when it gets stenatic and everything like builds up yeah. too much and it it can't push through and it can't get to the rest of the body the whole thing is one like giant poetic metaphor it really is and i that's something i'm really curious about for you because you've just been open about your you know your emotional sensitivity it requires incredible sensitivity and empathy to be an actor, especially an actor of your caliber. You're talking about your love of, you know, systems and science and learning things as, as you, Mary Louise, and I imagine because it also feeds your art. And one of the things I think so much about is that there's this strange duality for performers whereby you're meant to be accessible to people. Mm-hmm. And also you have to protect your energy. And especially because mm. your body is your instrument, your body has to be in flow. You have to feel like things are moving and free in order to yeah. do what you do. How do you do that for yourself? And I guess when did you find it? Was that also part of finding your voice at school, you know, when you when you went to university in North Carolina with, did it begin there or has it been a, a later into your career um, kind of quest? Well, when you say that, the first thing that occurs to me is the theater, which is that's the only time where I don't like no one comes in my dressing room after a half hour mm-hmm. unless there's something wrong with one of my kids. It's really entirely for me. And usually I get to the theater as early as I can. Mm-hmm. When I first had my son. I had him kind of in a Bjorn and I would put my makeup on in the mirror and that was, that was its own thing. But for the most part, that's the time that I really take to prepare and I don't need to answer to anybody and nobody sees it. and Nobody mm-hmm. knows what I need in mm-hmm. there and nobody can give me anything. I'm the only one who can provide what I need. And I think that's understanding that I need to this phrase is like it's a bit trite but I kind of need to take care of myself before I go on and I Mm. I recently even though I've been doing theater 
you know, for like 35 years or whatever, uh, more actually not good with math, but mm-hmm. probably more <laughs> that I need to take care of myself after. And mm-hmm. people love to come backstage after a play. And sometimes they do and it's fine. But I think I, I always thought it sounded pretentious to make it seem like, oh, I, I need to be alone after, but I kind of do. And mm-hmm. I remember when I did How I Learned to Drive the first time off Broadway um, and when I did Proof, there was mm. a back exit. And I just remember getting in the car and putting on my headphones and just feeling like I was high. And it would not have happened were I with someone else. Mm. And that time after I come off stage, I'm not my most successful in communicating with other people. And I am a bit of a loose cannon and I might say the wrong thing or, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's not even so much that sometimes I'm, I'm so worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing mm-hmm. that I kind of get all twisted up and it's unpleasant. And mm. it's, it's nice to come off stage and just like, keep that Mm -hmm. for a while. So I'm trying to learn to at least take a moment. If people have to come in, they come in, but I don't really like to see anyone Mm -hmm. after at all. Like I really, I quite hate it, but Mm I, I, I love knowing that people were there and I love hearing that people were there. And I've had some sweet encounters after that I wouldn't want to trade but I, I, I kind of really like to be mm-hmm. by myself then. And when yeah. I think of acting, I think of the theater. The rest of it doesn't, it just doesn't really come to mind because it's not how I see myself as an actor, mm-hmm. um, even though I've done the other stuff. That's so interesting to me because, well, I mean, God, your theater resume is just like, it's iconic. <laughs> I, the, the shows <sighs> that you have put up and and crafted and the impacts that they've made i i hope i hope you can just love that for you know us for outsiders who've come to watch you work it's it's so moving but i feel that way about your your on-screen performances too i mean what you did with weeds i mean come on you were the Nancy Botwin was the original anti-hero. She was this, you playing her, you, you were willing to put all of a human being's, you know, complication and, and emotion and mess and confusion and fear and beauty. You, you like, you threw it all out there. And, you know, I believe had to have been part of of what is now in our lifetime the successful push to legalize God, marijuana. Really, really nice of you to say that. I really think so. I was really lucky that I got that part and that I, I had that experience mm-hmm. available to me. I was so, so lucky. And ironically, I remember when I when I said that I wanted to do that. I wanted to do a TV show because I just had a baby and I just was like, okay, I, I need to figure out a way to make money steadily in a that won't disrupt his life. And I wanted to do that character. And mm-hmm. people made fun of me, not made fun of me. Some people questioned it. And some people mm-hmm. were like, some people openly mocked me. Hello, Chris Rock. Like, uh, like that I was on Showtime, you know, and I think I won 
the Golden Globe, I think. And he was like, nobody's watching Showtime except Snoop Dogg. Nobody's watching her show except Snoop Dogg. And it was kind of a joke that I was on Showtime. And I just kind of thought, well, it didn't, it really truly doesn't matter to me where I was doing it. And there were people who were like, well, you offered this, these other networks are really prestigious and you should do like this or that. And I was like, I just really liked that character. And I felt like Mm -hmm. that was one of the choices I made that I, it was the right choice. And I'm glad, I'm glad I made it. And oddly enough, like I went back to Showtime later for something and I was kind of invisible. It was weird. It was almost like a satire where somebody goes back and nobody's really, it's not like I expected anyone to be deferential, but it really, it, it was as though, yeah, what's your name and who are you seeing? And like everyone was, and they were like, yeah, we can't just sit down over here. Sorry, they're going to be late. And I don't know, this business is so humbling. And mm-hmm. I think people think that it's it's, it's constant adulation and- um, Much the opposite. It's a, yeah, it's a surprise <laughs> when people get close to me when they have not been anywhere near this business and see how- perfect strangers can come up to you on the street and say things that are like, you know, quite Mm -hmm. not very nice. And Mm -hmm. you have to love it really a lot and want to do it to kind of withstand that because that that can be Mm -hmm. a lot. It seems like there's an idea from the outside that it's fabulous and glamorous. And on the inside, everyone's like, no, I mean, we just work in these big warehouses that often don't have air conditioning. And like, we're just here. It's like us and it's the transpo guys and it's the camera guys. And that's just what we're doing. Yeah. It's actually very unglamorous. It's it's hard work and you have to love it. And And I think the piece that's missing is what people see is the produced episode or the movie or they see an award show and it's like, we all feel like, I feel like a clown every time I go to an award show. I'm like, this is not oh what gosh. I, we don't do this. We don't wear like these expensive clothes and borrowed jewelry. This is crazy. And it yeah. and it makes me giggle in a way, but it also makes me realize that I, I think everyone assumes you're being put on a pedestal everywhere else. So they kind of want to be the one to knock mm-hmm. you, make you feel regular. And you're like, look, I just get knocked in the head like 60 times yeah. a day. <laughs> That's just I had what a happened. friend say that to me full on mm-hmm. once. Well, I just figured you got the fanfare from everyone else. So I was, mm-hmm. I was like, no, I mean, that that hurts you when you say You don't get it from anywhere. I saw your movie. I didn't get it. I thought, you know, you didn't look so good. Or my friend said, her sister said to her once, you know, they're going to have to get you more flattering bathing suits. And she was like, you're my sister. <laughs> I don't need you, you know. And I, I don't think, need you to behave like a Twitter troll. Yeah. Well, there's, as is evidenced, if not proven now, mm. human beings have an inherent need for a certain kind of attention. Most people, if they did, they wouldn't use social media mm. because no one uses social media expecting nothing in return. No one uses mm. social media in a vacuum, expecting like no one to look at it, right? right? So these people are like, oh, this is my shot at getting the world to look at me. And then it's like these these expressions like going viral or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Or, and this is coming from a person who has no social media and thinks it's the devil. But I feel like people are so suspicious of actors. And there are some instances where I think they are right to be. But there are other people who came to this job because it was a way to communicate. And I wanted to be a regional theater actor. You know, I didn't want to be, I wasn't trying to be, 
America's sweetheart. You know, I wanted to be John Malkovich. So I, I guess there is no equivalent of that now. It's young actors. It makes me sad. It's like mm-hmm. they they put their stuff online or they, I don't know. And they, they're holding their phones up until someone calls cut yeah. or action. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I find such a conundrum with it because I look at it as a, as a vehicle to talk about important things, to do some political advocacy and to educate on social issues and to, you know, boost platforms of community leaders. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if everyone on online is selling something, I, I want to just have yes. an intellectual space. And then on the flip side, I'm like, but then I'm online and I'm looking at what everyone is selling and it makes me feel crazy. <laughs> Yeah. But then I'm a hypocrite too, because then there are times that I'm like, oh, you don't have social media, but how come you're reading that bullshit? Mm-hmm. And I don't even know how I got there. It's like, I like searched something and it led me to this, which led me to that. Which led, but it happens it's some kind of like- Our phones were designed by the same companies that designed slot machines. They're meant to be addictive and fluffy and this keep us true. on them. You know, I don't this think it's true. I don't think it's our And fault. this year, like I've learned the power of what you spoke about, like how it can be used for good hmm. in different ways. And I had wanted to talk to you about the company Fashion Kind. Yeah. Uh, because I work with this company in Ethiopia that helps get women off the streets. It's a leather company. It's First of all, it's the most beautiful products. And I'd like to send you something from there. But um also, it's 80% of the employees are women, mm-hmm. and so many of them uh, come from the community and came from being trafficked or ensconced in life of prostitution and now have a craft. Even mm-hmm. if they leave this company, they can go yeah. somewhere else mm-hmm. and and use it. And I've, I also feel really free about endorsing this company because I've been to the factory. Yeah. And I've also, you know, been to the red light district in Ethiopia in Addis, which is harrowing. And prostitution really, one of the biggest open air markets in East Africa is in Addis Ababa. So a lot of girls and the bus stop is there. Yeah. Like girls get off the bus from their village and their virginity is being trafficked in mm-hmm. minutes. So I think it's so interesting when we think about our earlier conversation about the the sort of pressures we were given as women. And I think about global violence against women and how um, physical violence against women is, is in so many places used as a, as a weapon of war and how the creation of a craft, an ability to make your own money and be in control of your own destiny everywhere is the future for women. It's, it's the crux of the, abortion debate that we have here, you know, should Mm -hmm. you be able to plan your family when you can? And, and it's an issue when we talk about, you know, what you're bringing up global trafficking. And, and I, I just, I get very excited about whether it's through the company you're referring to or fashion kind, which, you know, I'm working with, um, or even tech companies blossoming in, in parts of the world the idea that we can create new pathways to truly independent freedoms feels so exciting. And, yeah. and I think especially the, the artisanal nature of fashion and handcrafted things 
around the world is so often passed through generations of women. So the, yes. the opportunity for not only artistic preservation, but economic empowerment thrills me. Um, I got to visit years ago a couple of companies doing similar things in Uganda, working with women who had I love um, Uganda. been brought out of the LRA conflict. Mm. And I just, I see these, to your point about hearts, I see these doorways opening. And I'm so excited to figure out the ways, at the best of us, this internet connectivity, right? Like mm -hmm. the ways that we can use it to support each other all around the world yeah. is exciting to me. It is. And, and, and it is offering, I mean, there are, we, we can develop options mm -hmm. for women beyond selling your body mm -hmm. or being a domestic slave. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of countries, there's no choice. There's no option. Yes. And that's really difficult for people to understand here. And, mm -hmm. and I've also seen like a lot of people in this country, even when their heart is in the right place, wanting to fix mm. certain things that they see uh, in other countries, like, oh, I'm, we're building a well, and uh, things like that, that you know, once you've spent a considerable amount of time in one of those countries, it's not necessarily always the best thing for a community mm. for white people to come in, build a well, and then leave, mm. you know, or to like donate a bunch of their used clothes, like through their church mm. or whatever, and have them show up. And it, a lot of countries won't accept them anymore. Yeah. And they shouldn't. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's also understanding what is the best way to figure out what people need, which isn't always what you feel you want to give. Well, empowering community leaders, they're the ones who know their communities. And we've got to yes. really, I think all of us need to get out of our own way a little bit where we think, oh no, I have an answer for this. I learned about this. It's like, you yeah. don't have to be the expert here and that's okay. Yeah, It doesn't mean that you're not useful or that your help is unwelcome. It just means you need to, you need to lift from behind, not try to lead in a place oh. where you are a stranger. Wow. Well said. Very well said. When did you start going to Ethiopia? My daughter's born in Ethiopia and... My best friend is Ugandan. He was had a school, has a school. It's transitioning out of being a school that he started for um, ex-child soldiers. He was a child soldier. Mm. And I took my kids. We visited that school a bunch of times. And Rwanda, I've visited a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not something I talk about a whole lot because I find people are, as I was saying before, like suspicious of actors when they undertake causes like this. And and rightfully so, because I've I've been around people who who were making photo ops, mm. who did fly in for two days and shake someone's hand. And sometimes actually they did bring attention to something in a good way. Sometimes that is useful. But a lot of times I just don't think it's the right way to go about it. So I understand people being a little suspicious of that. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I'm photographed there or like bring, you know, crews, people with me, but um, it's just a place in the world that I love that if you told me 20 years ago, that's where you'll end up 
being your most comfortable, your happiest. And mm-hmm. I would have would have been a, a very big surprise. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. big surprise. It has been a big surprise. It's like so. Is it adopting your daughter, and then the the subsequent years of spending time there? Was that how you found Hope North? Yes. Well, when I first went to Ethiopia, that was the first time I'd been to Africa. Mm. Uh, And I met my friend. You know, that does go back to my daughter because I remember the person who introduced me to my uh, friend, Okello, thought, oh, well, Mary Louise has ties to Africa. So I think that is how I ended up meeting him. So a lot lot goes goes back to my daughter. And it's interesting that we were talking about this time in history and how we're examining things that we do and that we've thought and ways we've had of behaving that are not, aren't as useful anymore. And so many of those I feel so grateful for and relieved about for my Mm -hmm. daughter's sake, because I don't want her to go through some of the things that I went through. Mm -hmm. And then there are other things, ways in which I worry because I have a son and there are preconceptions that people have a handsome young white man. I don't know. It's an interesting time to have a lot of different conversations, but both of my mm-hmm. kids are so passionate and they've traveled so much and mm-hmm. they've been exposed to so many extremes. Okay. So this is something that interests me, you know, and, and look, I, I think we all are on a journey to understand ourselves, right? And And like know what our emotions have a tendency to do. And I'm so curious about how you figure out where you do want to open up. You know, you're, you wrote this book, Dear Mr. You, and it's, it's a direct address to men, you know, some mm-hmm. from your real life and, and some who are these fictional archetypes who've impacted you. Mm-hmm. And it's so, I felt so seen by it, and I imagine so many women who read it did. And it, it feels so open and honest And I wonder, how do you, as Mary Louise, figure out where you really want to open up and, you know, crack your, crack your chest for the world to see and, and in what ways you want to keep things on the inside? How how do you make that determination? I love that you understand that metaphor, having seen the same thing Mm. that I saw. I love Um, it. I think it's instinctual, Mm. you know, I think, um, in the same way that it's just, more animals, right? And for whatever reason, um, I'm a show dog. <laughs> you know, uh, I think I know I know how to do that. Not so much on film. I mean, I feel like on a stage, like that's that's kind of mine. Even at the mm. worst, even when I feel like I'm dying out there at oh. the worst night ever, whatever. Like it's, it still feels like something I understand that's primal, that's like ancient, that's, that I, that's sacred. And I love Mm. it. Uh, And I feel that way about writing as well. Mm. And writing, sometimes I write things that are really can be quite bald, you know, and that's just how they fall out of me. There's a lot of, there's some stuff in my book that's like some stuff that's violent. There's some stuff that's quite, you know, and C-17, you know, it just comes out like that. And I love that process. And I love that now, and this will be great for you in like 
seven years, like once you're just like just past like 43 or something, people treat you just a little bit different. Mm. You know, like I remember like when I like first had my book and I was going to, people were treating me in a different way that I really, really enjoyed. Mm. And I always hated conversations about Mm. acting and, you know, interviews. And I always felt I just could never find that. I never found that to, to be honest. It just wasn't, I just, just couldn't do that. But expressing myself through writing and I love writing and like poetry is my thing. I'm not a good poet, but like I, like nobody loves poetry more than me. I'm like, I'm like a poetry freak and I have a poetry club tonight on the street with a bunch of other freak nerds in oh, Brooklyn. I love that. And um, yeah. And I, and I started it. Yeah. That's what a geek I am. But I like words for me are, it's instinctual mm-hmm. that I go there and I know how to do that. But what was also interesting is when I was your age about, I wrote for Esquire for years, for like mm-hmm. 15 years. And nobody mentioned my pieces in Esquire to me. And when they did, they mentioned the photos that accompanied them. And that's totally my fault. Cause of course there I was in like underwear or like some freaking corset thing, which is a whole other conversation we can have sometime. But, uh, People would say, in fact, a friend who, I I bet he wouldn't remember saying this, but he said it. Somebody I'd known a long time asked me who who helped me write it, and somebody else asked me who wrote it for me. And it was so kind of crushing. And there's a tiny bit of me that was flattered, but it was also crushing in a way that I did not mention that I wrote to almost anyone. I just did Mm. it, you know, for whatever publication. Then when I was writing my book, like my close friends didn't know that I was writing a book and halfway through writing it, I almost died. Right. I was in the hospital and had this new assistant who was like coming to the hospital. Like he met me in the hospital. He's a very good friend now, but we joke because he's, he kept going up to my friends going, she keeps talking about a book. And I was really, really sick. Like, right. Like I had a sepsis, like nearly died. And she's talking about a book. And they were like, oh, no, no, she's not writing a book. Like she, they, they thought I was hallucinating. They were like, no, no, no. And he's like, but she wants me to call her literary agent. Like two of my friends are like, no, no, there's there's no literary agent. <laughs> oh, my god! Like, yeah. So I squashed that in the same way I squashed piano, you know, because I was kind of felt like I had to apologize for mm-hmm. it, you know? But – that's not going to happen to you because the world's like a little bit farther along. You're much smarter than me. I can tell it like from the past 40 <laughs> minutes, like, and it's just around that corner when you, you're going like, ah, I can't wear these kind of skirts anymore. You're like, yeah, but I get to have these kind of conversations mm-hmm. and people fucking listen yeah. to me. I will say though, I've had that experience. I've had the experience of having ideas and squashing things. I mean, God, there's binders full of, you know, like little moleskin notebooks everywhere of like, I want to start this and Mm. this could be a cool company. And what if we made a product? Like, I don't know. I think there's something about you get there when you get there. You can't rush it. You can't rush your development. But I think what you can do is lean into your creativity. And I feel like I'm, I'm learning so much this year about this. And I realize Mm. now in hindsight, you know, 
a year and a half into doing this podcast, I think I created this so I could have the kinds of conversations I wanted to have. Because I was so sick of doing an interview and being asked basic questions and then getting to the really interesting stuff and then seeing three poll quotes that were so random and sometimes cheesy. And I thought, yeah. you know, I want to have the, the sorts of conversations with people that I have around my dinner table and that I grew, I, I grew up dreaming about having with other creative people in my adult life. Like that fantasy of having a house full of writers and musicians and creators and activists mm. and good food and great wine. Like I would think about that as a young kid. I, I think because I I felt weird in the room a lot. And mm. and this these spaces, these kinds of conversations feel juicy like that to me. Yeah, it's like the the salon, right? Like I have that fantasy yes. too. I've always had that. Nicole Burdett and I talked about at one point, like when we're sixty five, oh. we should move to Norway and just have salons where we like invite people in. But you know, we could do that here. Let's we could do all it do. Here. It. We could like invite the people in and like have the cheese plate and the conversations yes. that we want to have. And it's like that old fashioned. It's like yeah, it's like George Sand. Oh. And like, it's like that, that period of time, like we're all sitting around talking about things and arguing about things. And I love it when people are in a room and they're like arguing and people are coming from totally different places. And then at the end of the night, they hug. Yes. It's like that. You're not just not allowed to have that anymore. And I it's like, that's, I, I'm, I want to have that. I'm, I'm not going to learn anything having conversations with myself for the rest I of my agree. life. I agree. I agree. My God, I just spent time um, on this ecological reserve. And I, I had this moment where I thought, oh, this is what we're missing standing. And I'm looking at this girl on this side who is, you know, working there. Who's this girl who grew up vegan in New Hampshire, like campaigned for Bernie, super interesting environmental science, you know, student. And then on this side, these two guys in their fifties from Texas, who've been coming to this place to hunt elk forever. And they're, you know, one of them is asking me about the book I've been reading and it's a, a book about the history of breath. And I'm talking to him about, the, you know, what they're mm. finding in the evolution of human skulls. And he was like, I don't really do evolution. You know, I'm a faith guy. And, and, I, and I challenged him to this idea that a friend of mine who, who grew up in a certain evangelical tradition said, well, what if, you know, what if every one of God's seven days was millennia long? And he was like, well, that's really interesting. I guess that, that makes for room for science and God. And, and she's talking about, you know, and, and we're, and we're <sighs> talking about the restoration of this land and how you have to keep the elk herd at a certain size. Um, and that's how they're bringing back the endangered trout and bald eagles are coming back and soon wolves are coming and all. And I was like, look at all of us having these fascinating discussions together. The echo chamber is just a creation of someone who makes money on people fighting. And, and we can be in spaces together and learn from each other. And it made me feel so just excited. And it reminded me of the potential for exactly that discourse debate, and then really seeing each other. Yeah. How amazing would it be if we could get like that little microcosm of that experience that you oh. had and like, like multiply yes. it, you know, like go around the world and create these little salons and like bring people mm -hmm. and bring people completely opposite mm -hmm. together to have conversations, knowing that mm -hmm. at the end, like we're going to 
shake yeah. hands and that, you know. Like- and and setting the one ground rule as in this space, you have to give everyone the very best benefit of the doubt. Right. Assume that everyone here, whether you believe the same or you don't, really, really cares about someone. I, I think in that moment, you can humanize each other so quickly. It's it's the way that I felt that day in open heart surgery that I was telling you about my first mm. my first day. The the next morning, my my head surgeon sent me a photo of our patient awake in the ICU, giving me a thumbs up, Oof. and I burst into tears. I think about this man all of the time. I have no idea what he believes. I have no idea what his politics are. I don't know about the health of his family, though they seemed like they really loved each other. They were all there. I got to meet them all after surgery. But I love him. I've, yeah. I've touched his heart and I love him. I know. <laughs> uh, and I just think, I, I think we could do no, that. No, I know 100% what you're saying. I know 100% what you're saying. Like, and I, I remember seeing my son when this kid, the same name as my son, his name was William, uh, came out of heart surgery and he was a really tricky case. And there could not be more opposite. Mm. And there are things that I think if he knew about my son's life and the, the, they're just so, so different, mm. but that he just wanted, he really took to my son. He just wanted Will to just hold his hand, you know, and just seeing like that's the most this, this woman uh Kathy LeMay she's a philanthropist she's brilliant and I was talking to her about the school I was trying to keep open for the longest time you know because I had my whole ideas about how mm. I could help and she was saying no no the best thing that you can do and what I've discovered is when you go to these war-torn countries you go to these like areas where there's just overwhelming need is to just sit with people, mm-hmm. and it's 100% just true. Listen. It's 100% mm-hmm. true. Just sit, hold somebody's hand, and, and I, I've done that more times than I can count with people who we shared maybe five mm-hmm. words. And seeing my kids able to do that, too, mm-hmm. makes me really proud. Mm-hmm. So when you think about those causes you lean into, um, and if you wouldn't mind you know, telling folks a little bit about what Hope North is, because I realized I forgot to circle back. And and also the David Lynch Foundation. I mean, you work with these two great oh, yeah. organizations. Yeah. And and I first learned TM when I was 23, which for anyone listening at home who doesn't know, TM stands for Transcendental Meditation. I studied with a um, a phenomenal teacher here wow. in LA. And I, I would just love for you to tell people a little bit about them because I, I oh would imagine God, that yeah. anyone listening- Well, the leather company- in Ethiopia is Parker Clay, mm-hmm. and it's Parker Clay, all spelled out, dot mm-hmm. com, one word. And it's not my Parker. It's they named the company after their two sons when, when they only had – they were watching this couple, their friends of mine, watching Hotel Rwanda, and they were completely devastated. What can we do? They picked up. Their families were like, what are you doing? They moved to Africa, like started this – company, adopted children, like seeing what they've done with their energy is really, really moving. And their products are beautiful mm. and something that you can feel good about buying. That's mm. one. Hope North is in Uganda. It's near Gulu. It's in the North mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful area of the world that I love so, so much. And 
we were not able to sustain it. Mm. Um, we were not able to make a self-sustaining place mm. as a charity. And it's being transitioned now out of being a school. And once all the kids are gone, trying to find some use of that land of which I don't know yet. I was trying to trying to figure that one out. And I Well, the organizations but, that I mentioned to you that I worked with um, in Uganda, one is based in Gulu. So I'll I'll make a couple of phone calls and see please, what, that would be what they're up to because I know they're expanding. They're hiring so many more women, and really? maybe maybe it's a kismet moment where they need another facility. Well, the the surrounding areas of that place of Hope North is so poverty stricken, mm. and just a tiny bit of education would go so far there. Like every time I'm there with Okello, we would walk around, and he'd say, "Look at everything that grows mm. here." This, like avocado, mango, mm-hmm. this, th- they're never going to eat it. They think that is to be sold in the market. And they're just boiling cassava down, with boiling all the nutrients mm-hmm. out of it. And their babies are dying. So I think in that area of world, the world, like a little bit of education would go so far, mm-hmm. like female hygiene, just a little bit of help. Yeah, we take for granted here the amount of information we have and access to public health information and education. I mean, we, to your point about how it's hard for people to understand how there are regions of the world where women literally have no choice in their own Mm-mm. future. There are, there are just spaces that have been so disempowered where there's no access. And I, and I know that gets us into a larger, you know, geopolitical conversation and, and often, um, you know, historical influence that's been inappropriate on on behalf of our country and Agreed. any others like us. But Agreed. I, I think that, again, my hope is that the best of the digital age can bring us to a place where we can um, we can offer our neighbors around the world the same things we can offer to our literal next door neighbors. And that's a fantasy. Mm. For me, me and especially with this particular piece of land. And now I have this fantasy uh, after talking to you of this like moving salon, oh, movable feast. I'm, I'm in. I, we can be, we can. I'm so into this. I can't even tell you. A, a piano accountability and a traveling circus of a salon. <laughs> I'm obsessed piano with. Piano accountability is like genius. Just as a phrase. I'm just going to start texting you photos of my keyboard. It's going to be great. Please. <laughs> Please. Um, I, um, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait for okay. it. And also, as far as the David Lynch oh, yes. Foundation, uh, yeah, my kids presented me with an award, which I felt weird about getting because I don't really talk about the charity work that I do. Mm-hmm. But I felt like because I feel like it, it feels a bit cheesy. But at the same time, I felt like these galas. It's not like they were. Yes, they were honoring me so lovely. But it's like a reason to have a gala so they can raise more money mm-hmm. for David Lynch Foundation, which is giving so much peace and healing to so many people, mm-hmm. you know, abused women, veterans alone is that's so close Incredible. to my heart. My dad was a soldier. Both my brothers were mm-hmm. soldiers and they've done so much work there. And, and I had a father who came back from, he was in three wars. Mm-hmm. He came back from world war two and Korea. No, no nothing support. for him. Nobody gave him anything, yeah. no help. And that's a lot of PTSD. And I grew up with a dad who had that. I mean, he was 
a wizard and a hero, but he was shaken uh, and traumatized. And David Lynch, you know, in the most practical, simplest terms, as you know, if you meditate, like gives that gift to so many veterans and has saved so many lives. Um, And one of the things I think is so cool about being alive in this moment when we have, again, access to all this information is to see not just the effects people tell you about, about when they start meditating and the, the reduction in their stress and, and all of, all of the kind of benefit they feel, but seeing the brain scans where people's gray matter starts expanding in their brain. And have you seen, cause I haven't seen anything like that. There are studies that are saying that meditation actually is able to basically expand the best parts of your brain. And one thing that I I read is is saying that they're planning over the next couple of years, they think they'll be able to study whether or not the benefit to the brain could actually be a way to, for the younger generations to get ahead of the risk of Alzheimer's disease. That's just a theory right now. It's not a a fact, but even the idea that these are the things we're beginning to see in the oldest traditions you know, that the, the science is proving um, what some of our oldest traditions have taught, I just think is so cool. It feels like a really exceptional moment for all of the, you know, pain and confusion and uncovering. I, I also feel like we're in this amazing moment. It almost feels like a surgery in a way. Like we got to crack it open and clean out the junk, but then we could stitch it up and be healthier. Oh, yes. Well said. When you think about that kind of expansion. I I also think about the curiosity that it can create space for. And then I think about how that makes me feel excited to investigate characters and, and, and how we're, I don't really know why this is hitting me this way right now, but I'm going to try to (laughs) explain my train of thought clearly. All of this, all these themes we're talking about feel like a deepening and an uncovering and at times a revisiting and an exploration. And and I know you're also in this moment in your career where you're, uh, you're reprising your role in How I Learned to Drive. You're talking about bringing weeds back. Do you think that this sort of moment of expansion has made you want to go back into certain things and expand in them as well in terms of those characters and those jobs? you know, those, those humans that you made? That's really interesting. Weeds, honestly, is pure nostalgia mm. and money <laughs> uh, because it would be so good. And it's just like, I could support all my charities then. But, and I don't know if it'll happen. I mean, there's been talks of it. I, I hope that it will mm. happen. Um, and with me, I mean, I don't know that it will, but I hope that it will. But How I Learned to Drive, I think is an amazing exercise to play a part because I've played a lot of parts multiple Mm. times each time I've been afraid that I wouldn't that I would lose what I had before and each time I gained by discovering less in certain areas which is interesting and this one I'm doing 25 six seven years later and it's a part that the character is 11, she's 30, Mm -hmm. she's 40, it's all these different ages. And it hits something so deep, I don't even have any words for it. 
I turned it down a couple of times when they sent it to me when I was in my late 20s because I just thought, oh, I'm, I don't think I'm the right person for this. But I really wanted to work with Paula and I wanted to work with this director. So I said, could I just read it out loud? And it fell out of my mouth. And it was just like, talk about cracking your chest open yeah. again. It just was like that. Wow. And I just wasn't really prepared for it. You know, sometimes like you get a script and sometimes you think, oh, these words are right there in my mouth. And you go to Sam and it's like, it just doesn't yep. come out. You don't have yep. it. But this was the opposite. Mm. This was like... It was like right there. And so going back to see what it's like now, we were rehearsing already. And it was, if that's the last time I ever get to act, I'm okay with it. Because that in the rehearsal, even just going back and doing it was so fulfilling. Wow. Is the only word. If I had walked out of that studio and never acted again, I would have been like, God, I was a million times luckier than I ever deserved. Mm. So, so great. So I like the idea about circling back. I think it's just, I was lucky to have these opportunities. Mm -hmm. And also I didn't reject them because I've never been somebody who's been like goal oriented as an actor, you know, like certain actors, one actress in particular saying, you need to just take more parts at a time when I was like, there's just not one I want to play. Mm -hmm. Or like, you should do this part because then you'll get this kind mm -hmm. of part. And I n never was able to operate like that. Me neither. I never was like goal oriented or I wanted to like hit this or be this kind of actor. I don't know. I felt like I already got what I wanted and I don't need, I'm just like lucky that I have it and have had it. I don't need more. When art is working, it feels free and being strategic feels like the opposite to me a little bit. It feels the opposite. Yeah. I get that. It is, it is internally, it's just a whole different, it's like the second ago when you were said, like when you said, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but I'm going to keep with it. And I'm going to, as soon as you said that, I went like this, like, even if I didn't do it with my body, I did it <laughs> internally yeah. because you were like right in yourself figuring something out and you were taking a risk because you were opening your mouth, not knowing what you're going to mm -hmm. say other than like, I know there's something in there I want to mm -hmm. say that I want to get yeah. to. And like, there's nothing more exciting than that, than somebody who's willing to be like, okay, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to try. I was like, that, it's, it's nothing more interesting mm. to me. I immediately, I'm going to sit forward when somebody like goes there. Especially because, and this also, like, I hate this in myself when I feel like my mouth opens and I know what I'm going to say, or it's like I have this thing that comes out like a, like a, but I'm like, like, mm. like a verse <laughs> or something, you know? And I said to my kids the other day, walking down the street, and I said, I was quoting, and now I can't remember who I was quoting. You're smarter than me and you'll probably know it's like um those who speak hear what they already know those who listen learn and hear what they don't Ooh. and there's something about speaking when you don't know what you're going to say but you know there's something like bubbling up in there that's like mm -hmm. to be expressed that's really, really exciting to, to me because it's honest, mm. right? It's honest. Well, 
It's like, I don't know what I'm going to say, but here I am. It's like, it's the opposite mm-hmm. of some like, let me talk to you about these projects and this like charity, <laughs> like this person that I like will never. Well, be. I have to say thank you though, because you you met you've met me here, so we've had a really juicy, curious, where is this going? Hang and like an actual conversation. Yes, and I couldn't, I wouldn't have done that or been doing this if I felt like you had set a stage where I was supposed to, you know, pitch you a thing and ask you a series of questions in a linear order. And then we were going to be like, oh, and we've all come up on our time. Like, it just wouldn't have been the same. Right, right, right. So thank you. Right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And in fact, yesterday I was walking through my living room and I heard, you know, my sister was on the phone. They were like, is there anything she doesn't want to talk about? And I just instinctually said, no, I'm good. Whatever. I was like, I I just want to talk to her. And and like, that was... I love it. I'm going to ask you, this is my favorite question that I do ask everyone who comes on the podcast because the show's called Work in Progress. And and Mm. kind of to the point that we were talking about earlier, we're on the outside of this business. Everyone like looks in and goes like, well, you just have it all figured out. Uh, I love to be like, no, (laughs) not at all. Um, We're all trying to figure it out. So I, I wonder for you, you know, in this moment, the, the culmination of this wild last year and a half and, and and the things you're revisiting and the things you're looking to create and, and all of it, what what feels like your work in progress right now? I'm going to say everything. And if you have two seconds, yeah. do you have two yeah. seconds? Okay. This is a just a little section of this Dennis Johnson poem uh, called The Monk's Insomnia. Mm. I did at one point know most of it by heart, but I don't now. But this part is the part that just kills me. Um, This is like three quarters of the way through the poem. So uh, if you can read the entire poem, I highly encourage it. But there's a piece in it. At night, we hear the trainers from the base down there and see them blotting out the stars. And I stand on the hill and listen, bone white with desire. Mm. It was love that set me on the journey, love that called me home. But it's the terror of being just one person, one chance, one set of days that keeps me absolutely still tonight and makes me listen intently to those young men above us flying in their airplanes in the dark. The part of that that kills me, it's the terror of being just one person, one chance, one set of days Mm. that just kind of devastates me because... I don't have any fully formed idea about what happens when we die. Not that it would be correct if I had an idea or not, mm. but the idea I do associate the, the word terror with the idea of if this is it, like, and we have one set of chances, mm. like it's such a sobering idea and it makes every single breath like, part of a work in progress. Mm. It makes everything a living thing because ultimately everything is alive because we're all part of this one giant thing, which is living, Mm. right? So to me, there's nothing set and there's nothing more terrifying or tragic to me than the idea of myself being set. And all I need, like all I need on earth is to know my children are okay. And that I have another chance. Yeah. 
Oh, I think that's so beautiful. Can I offer you a section of one of my favorite poems in return? Because that felt like such a gift. There's a poet I love named Jack Gilbert. Oh my God, oh, Jack Gilbert is like... Isn't he like, incredible? Yeah. There's, there's this middle... He, he wrote this poem called A Brief for the Defense. And in the middle of it, same, I'll just read you a section because otherwise it'll be very long. But he says, we must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. <laughs> like now I'm crying. It, oh, it just kills me. I'm, I'm ready. You're I'm such coming. a badass. I want you to come to my <laughs> poetry club. But um, yeah, Jack Gilbert, I've read one Jack Gilbert poem like three times. Between him, did you ever listen to uh, Krista Tippett? interview Mary Oliver the year before she passed away on On no. Being. Oh, okay, I'm going to no. send you a link to it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Also, you should look at Carl Phillips. Like, this is what a geek I am. I literally have watched the Library of Congress interview with Carl really? Phillips. It's like, yeah. I'm writing this down. Freaking <laughs> phenomenal. And James Galvin. Also, also Tony Hoagland, who just passed mm. away. I have so many... Um, post-it notes out from this interview. Tony Hoagland, you need to check out Tony Hoagland and my friend Matthew Zapruder, who is a badass, like, oh my God, Elegy for Bob. This is a great Jack Gilbert poem look, Mark. Thank you. I'm coming to Poetry Club next time I'm in New York. It's literally <laughs> my favorite thing. Oh, Mary Louise, this has been so fun. You're yeah. a dream. Oh my God, likewise. Like, <laughs> I want to travel the world with you Same. and like have our create our salon. Okay, perfect. I can see the whole thing. I know what we're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. I love it.